0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm finally on the other side. Last month, I defended my PhD thesis, which was titled, A Planetary Perspective of Life. Thanks to all of you who watched the live stream online, I hope you enjoyed both the science and the Star Trek in my talk. And if you missed it, the video is still pinned to my friend and frequent podcast guest Peter Gao's Twitter, at Planetary That's at Planetary G-A-O. I am quite relieved that my thesis is done. You can probably tell by my voice alone that my stress levels have returned to their nominal state, and I'm happy to be able to spend more time making great content exploring the crossroads of science fiction and science fact for you. Now, let's get one thing straight. Please don't call me Dr. Wong. I'm still not used to it. Just keep calling me Mike, and if you really want to be formal about it, go ahead and call me Michael. Now, today I'm going to bring you a much overdue episode, recorded before I defended my PhD thesis, where Elise Cuts and I discuss some recent though no longer breaking Star Trek news, recap our respective spring break adventures, and talk about the theory of evolution. To facilitate these discussions, we watched the Enterprise episode Two Days and Two Nights and the TNG episode Genesis. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds.
1: Hey, it's good to be back. It's been a while.
0: Yeah, it has. And for good reason, too, because we've been pretty busy traveling the world.
1: (laughs) Sort of. Both of us have had our own shore leaves here.
0: Indeed. And so to celebrate our recent travels, we decided to watch a shore leave episode today. Mm -hmm. Um, The Enterprise episode, Two Days and Two Nights. And what an interesting two days and two (laughs) nights they had. (laughs)
1: I still, I still get a kick every time after, out of the end when they're all back on the shuttlecraft and everyone's just hating their life and Hoshi's just sitting there just glowing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I had a good time. Yeah. How about you guys? <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll get to the different characters' adventures in just a sec, but I also wanted to mention at the top that we watched a second episode, which is more related to today's scientific topic. Mm-hmm. We watched the Next Generation episode, Genesis, so that we could talk about evolution.
1: Yep, and this is a Science of Star Trek podcast, so there will be some technobabble dissection here coming up after we talk about fun vacation things.
0: Yeah, but before we do any of that, I think it would be good to go through some Star Trek news. So Yeah, there's been a
1: bit of it out, so let's do it.
0: Yeah, do uh, you want to start with Discovery or the Kelvin timeline?
1: Oh. <sighs> I feel like that's like asking me which one I like better. (laughs) We've already established that's impossible. Uh, Let's go alphabetically, let's go with Discovery.
0: Okay, so CBS recently released a little teaser video about a minute long that showed some pre-production for Star Trek Discovery season two. And what stuck out to me the most about this little snippet of the behind the scenes was the uniforms.
1: The classic tricolor. Yes. Coming back. Yeah. Short skirts and all.
0: (laughs) Well, I just love seeing the rich. Mustard gold for Captain Pike's uniform, and it looks like there will be some red shirts, too.
1: Let's kill them! (laughs) More carnage in Disco!
0: (laughs) Yeah, Um, so that was really exciting because, you know, Star Trek Discovery is a visual reboot, and it's a really fine line to tiptoe. How far do you go with that? I mean, Mm -hmm. they they definitely redid the uniforms uh, for the USS Discovery crew. And uh, made them look like a, a nice little in between evolution, I guess evolution, yeah, because we're talking about evolution <laughs> between Enterprise, the jumpsuits in Enterprise, and the uniforms that would come in the other part of the 23rd century. But it looks like they will be honoring the fact that the USS Enterprise crew does have different uniform colors for the different departments. Mm-hmm. Rather than just the subtle, here's a copper stripe, copper, here's a... Copper, silver, gold. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I loved that. I thought that was super classy and fit very well with the almost sort of like noir feel of Discovery, but I'm excited to see what they'll do now that they really have to tiptoe around the cannon mm-hmm. because they just brought in this huge cannon bomb with Enterprise and there's so much attached to Enterprise that they can't screw up without of course in reaching the fans. Of course they can do whatever they want, but the backlash, the internet backlash. They got to they've got <laughs> to be prepared for that. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle all of that. I kind of am hoping that they'll throw some of the stuff that just didn't make sense out the window and just kind of retcon it. Like the women's uniforms, can we retcon that? can can we please not have it be like, ah, like progressive sort of gender neutral uniforms in like the early part of the 23rd century and the late 22nd, and then, nope, short skirts, we're going back to this for a little bit, but then we're going straight back to jumpsuits for Picard and Le Creux. yeah So it just doesn't, that progression just really doesn't make sense in the timeline, so... I'm hoping that it'll be explained.
0: You know, maybe it just comes and goes in phases with fashion. You know, by the time you get to the 24th century, you've got men in short skirts. Only so. in that pilot. <laughs>
1: and maybe that was Q. We don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, just I I wouldn't put I... it past Q. <laughs> Definitely. He's scoping out the scoping out the ship. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts on the Discovery release?
1: Uh, I didn't like the video because it showed behind the scenes, and I... Don't like mixing behind the scenes with like voiceover of the crew and stuff from the actual series because it ruins the magic for me. It's like no, I don't want to think of this as a show. I want to think of this as me somehow spying on the future. Like I don't want to think about that it's actors or like that there's prop building or that all the flashy metally stuff is actually just really well spray painted cardstock and and wood and stuff. I don't want to think about it. I just wanna. <laughs> I just wanna have my immersion and. I actually would have really just preferred if they went one way and just had it just be like, hey, we're working on this. Look, at this cool behind the scenes footage. Or if they had like Burnham doing some voiceover of like a cool shot of the Enterprise in space and it was just really short and said coming this date. But seeing them together just sort of like hurt my soul. (laughs) And I understand that this is just sort of a weird me thing. Mike loved it.
0: Yeah, it Um, got me super pumped.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to see it. But also it's just like, don't. Don't take my beautiful window into the future and then tarnish it with Hollywood. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to see behind the curtain.
0: Actually, this might be a good time to tell our listeners exactly how we met, because um, (laughs) wait, they don't know. I don't think we've ever told anyone. (laughs) It's very Star Trek related. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this might be a good time to tell the story. If not, we can edit it out. So, I. I don't even know where to start the story. Um, I'll start. Okay, you start. I'll start, start the story because the story. I have a good start to the story. Okay, go for it. So
1: i i I was a, I was a freshman in college when Mike was a fourth-year grad student, and so usually these groups do not mix that much. There's a bit more at Caltech just because it's so small, but everybody at Caltech does theater because our theater department is so small. It's not really even a it's not an academic department it's just a group so like literally anybody with the vaguest association with Caltech is allowed to participate because really they need everyone. So grad students, staff, spouses, girlfriends, boyfriends, JPLers, their boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, children, sisters, brothers, and students, both graduate and undergraduate all do theater at Caltech together. And I walk on campus as like an eager freshman, as freshmen are, uh, wanting to do everything and join every club. And I see a sign for the musical. And I had done musicals in high school. And I was like, hmm, maybe I could do this here. Maybe it would be fun here, too. I won't have to deal with all those bitchy choir people from my high school. So I, I go up and I look at it, and it's a Star Trek musical! I was like, no. No, it couldn't be. So of course I signed sign up. I was like, wow, I made the best choice ever to come to this nerdy school with a Star Trek musical. So I sign up, I audition, and I get placed in this role as like basically the red shirts in this musical were chorus girls. And so it was just chorus girl. But I met Mike because he was in the show. All as... right. All right. Now let me tell my part of the story up to this point and then we'll continue. Okay. okay, okay. So,
0: so, yes, as you all know, I've been a lifelong Star Trek fan. But unlike Elise, I have zero theater background, much less musical theater. So imagine me just walking around Caltech's campus one day, you know, just taking a leisurely stroll. And I see this poster for auditions for a Star Trek Trek parody musical. You can can see it a mile off. And I'm just like, that's cool. But like, (laughs) there's no way. Right, there's no way, and you know I'm like, ah, oh, it's too bad, you know, I, I I can't sing, whatever. But my friends sort of egg me on, especially Peter Gao, who was on this podcast uh, several times. He was yes. like, come on, come on, there's the, you, you just got to try out, you know, there's no harm in giving it a shot. So I walk in there and sit down in front of Brian Brophy, who is a Star Trek alum, and he runs the theater department at Caltech. So that was kind of a thrill to you know audition for Star Trek in front of a Star Trek alum, and. Uh, he puts some sheet music in front of me, and I sing for the first time <laughs> in my life. But luckily, at Caltech, you're not really competing against theater majors or music majors. So I got cast in the part of Sulu. And at rehearsal, that's where I met Elise. Mm-hmm. I distinctly remember a summer rehearsal very, very early on when Brian Brophy was trying to get everybody in the spirit of Star Trek and encouraging people to actually go back and watch Star Trek to get a feel for the characters. <laughs> yeah, most
1: people did not try out because they liked Star Trek. There's sort of a regular crowd of people who do the show no matter what it is. And so there was just sort of a handful of people sprinkled in who were actually like real fans who were literally just there because it was star trek
0: (laughs) right and so brophy was like well you know you've probably all heard of captain kirk and you know it's such a classic series somebody you've definitely seen snippets of the original series and then have you seen episodes from the next generation which he's familiar with because he was on have you seen episodes from deep space nine and then he sort of like lost it and like couldn't remember the next two series names <laughs> and there's this girl who's just like well it's voyager and enterprise obviously oh, right and, and i'm I was exactly like, like that huh, too yeah it's completely <laughs> like i had
1: braces at the time <laughs> It must have been just awful. <laughs> well,
0: well, I, was, I was like, oh, wow. actually, So somebody else here does know something about Star Trek. Because like Elise said, a lot of the people there were there because they liked theater, not because they liked Star mm-hmm. Trek. Um, but actually, so this was a really transformative experience for me. And I don't think I've ever really told you why. So as Lee said, this was her freshman year, but it was my fourth year of grad school. And it was really during like my mid-grad school crisis here. I was struggling with two projects, and neither of them were going very well. One of them had to do with the origin of life at hydrothermal vents on early Earth. And long story short, with that one, there was a lot of nasty peer review that was going on uh, with it. And I was getting a little down about that and maybe this paper will never get published, blah, 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 blah. And at the same time, I was struggling working on Pluto and and that was really frustrating because the data kept moving and I thought I was only gonna be working on this project for a few weeks, but it ended up being more like two years. So I would go to theater and sing about Star Trek as a release and an escape. But the cool thing about theater at Caltech is that it's so cross-cutting amongst the Caltech community. There are people from JPL who helped run the missions that made my thesis possible, but then there were also freshmen like Elise and another freshman named Lydia Kivrak, who's also a planetary science major at Caltech. And it just so happened that Elise had an interest in hydrothermal vents and astrobiology and the origin of life, and Lydia had an interest in Pluto. And it was really through my after-rehearsal or mid-rehearsal conversations with them that really re-inspired me to uh, take my research seriously. To be like, look, actually, you know, somebody finds Pluto really cool. So were you and stealing
1: enthusiasm from freshmen? I
0: was, I was inspired. <laughs> I, was, I was really inspired. I was so really that's where motivated. all of my enthusiasm Mike <laughs> took it from me, <laughs> I and now I'm a bitter
1: shell of a geologist.
0: No, so. <laughs> uh, no it, was really, it was really fun. You know, sometimes you've just got to see things through the eyes of a freshman to not really get too depressed about research, to get um, too bogged down in the details of your work and take a step back and realize that these are things that are worth pursuing because they're grand and they're mysterious and they're just fun to think about. So thank you and I thank Lydia for engaging with me for keeping you alive and helping me through that. Anyhow, so um, long story short, suffice it to say, Elise and I met on the bridge of the Enterprise at Caltech. And why did I even bother to tell this story? It was because of what you said about the discovery, showing the behind the scenes and mixing up the actual Star Trek on the screen with how Star Trek is built and it's a job for people. And so Boldly Go was that weird thing for me where, yeah, I'd always treated Star Trek as this thing that was out there that I couldn't touch, but it was also a really fun experience to like paint the bridge and try to make the consoles look as true to Star Trek as they could be, which I helped out with. And so now when I see something like the Discovery preview, I'm like, oh, it gets me excited because it reminds me that normal people like you and me can actually use their two hands and make Star Trek a reality, right? It's it's like that's, that's how it's made. It's not just magical. It is people putting in a lot of work.
1: But I want it to be magical. <laughs> okay, we've wasted <laughs> enough time
0: on this. I just want to briefly mention the Kelvin Timeline news, which is that apparently Paramount is putting two new Kelvin Timeline shows in the works. And one of them is going to be directed by S. J. Clarkson, who will happen to be the first female director in Star Trek's history for uh, a motion picture.
1: There have been individual women who've done sh- like shows. Yeah, yeah.
0: the directed the TV episodes, but no Star Trek Movie. motion picture. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's kind of wild that it took this long. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, maybe Me Too played into that or something, but. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. I didn't didn't Paramount not want to comment on it either. They were just sort of like, "Hey, just stop, stop making a big deal about this. It's just it should be normal sort of a thing." Yeah, I kind of like that. It would really irritate me if they just came out and did all this like huge hoopla about like, "Look at us, we're hiring women to do jobs that any like a human is capable of doing." Wow, go us, pat 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 pat. That they just kind of quietly did it and just are refusing to engage with the hoopla about it goes miles for me to know that it's like not really just a pr stunt like they just chose a talented director who mm-hmm. happened to be a woman which is pretty cool
0: it reminds me of how star trek beyond very subtly recognized sulu's homosexual nature mm-hmm. by just saying oh here's his husband here's his daughter everything's fine mm-hmm. you don't you don't need to make a big no, deal like, big about it
1: drama about like coming out of the closet or anything it's just this is the normal of this century like
0: yeah So let's move on to shore leave. And so maybe we can tell a few stories from our respective trips. So just to recap, I went to Hawaii and Elise went to the Galapagos over spring break. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, is there anything, any particular like one salient story that you Mm. want to tell from your trip?
1: Well, I saw a lot of weird stuff. The Galapagos is a weird place, Um, but I think the coolest thing was if you're, like us and from north america and haven't done a lot of traveling abroad you probably have only ever seen one sky when you go out at night and look up at the stars and if you're also like us and you live in a city you probably see the same handful of maybe 50 stars and that's it you see orion you see the big dipper and you're like ah constellations i see them you don't see them. <laughs> uh, going to the Galapagos, I was on a boat for four days, and one of those nights was an equatorial crossing, and so I stayed up all night. I was very tired the next day, and very cranky, much to the chagrin of my, my classmates who were on the trip with me, but it was worth it because I stayed up over, like, six hours, six, seven hours, to watch the sky slowly, subtly change both as the night progressed and the Earth turned, but also as we were crossing a lot of latitude. We were going from a bit north to quite a bit south of the equator over this night. And the equatorial sky is between, as you would expect, the southern sky and the northern sky, so there were still some constellations that I was familiar with, like Orion was still visible for some of the night. But there were also all of these constellations I hadn't seen before, and like the Southern Cross was up there, and it was just very cool to be somewhere where there was no light pollution. I was just sitting in the middle of the ocean. I mean, of course, it's a bit humid, so it's not perfect conditions, and clouds would go by occasionally, um, but it was pretty dang close to perfect conditions to be stargazing. And just out in the middle of nowhere on a boat, couldn't see any other boats, uh, I was all alone in this huge ocean, um, watching the sky change. So that was that was really something to see all of those stars that we up here in the U.S. are not super familiar with. That was probably a highlight, which is completely unrelated to it being at, on the Galapagos, but it was, it was uh, a highlight for me nonetheless.
0: Well, we'll get to what you did in the Galapagos and why that was an important location in a bit. I'd say for me, the Star trek experience that I had was getting lost on a lava field because of a rainstorm. So there was one day when we went out on a hike and we were hiking across this lava field to see what were called lava trees, which is when uh, if you imagine a lava, like a river of lava flowing down uh, a slope and encountering a forest, sometimes the lava will pile up on the backs of tree trunks and the trees will burn down and what's left over is solid lava that looks like a, a big tube, a giant column, and then in the middle of that is like just emptiness where the tree used to be. So those are really cool. And we're, so we're walking through this lava field full of lava trees, uh, and eventually we're trying to get to a crater in Volcanoes National Park on the Big Island of Hawaii. But a huge rainstorm hit. So our valiant leader, Professor Paul Asimo, decided that we were gonna hop from lava tree to lava tree to evade the rain, because the rain was coming down so hard and the wind was blowing so hard that basically it was coming horizontal at us. So we could sort of hide behind these lava trees and all line up behind this lava tree to try to stay dry. Um, so we were hopping between lava tree and lava tree and the visibility was terrible and we were just laughing because it was so crazy. And then when the rain parted, We thought we knew where we were going, but we really didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Classic geology. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So basically this lava flow... And, and mind you, this is not active lava flow. We call solid lava lava still. But it's it's this crunchy ah-ah type lava, which for listeners who don't know is this is this very sharp, prickly lava. Spiky boy. Yeah, and the reason why it's called ah, ah is because if you were to walk in it with your bare feet, you would say ah-ah-ah. Okay,
1: that's not actually why it's called that, <laughs> but it's a good way to remember. <laughs> and the other
0: major kind of lava is the hoy, which is the more smooth, ropey texture. Uh, this lava has a lot lower... viscosity as it's flowing down, so the tops of its crust aren't quite as spiky and brittle. But we were on this ah ah-ah field that fingered out between the trees that were still standing so there was like a forest and then a lava flow and then a forest and then a lava flow and a forest etc and we had gone down the wrong finger of this lava flow and so we were quite lost for a long time and my friend Pushkar, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago just uttered out of nowhere i didn't think we'd die like this (laughs) Um, but eventually we figured out where we're going thanks to the magic of GPS and it really reminded me of just getting lost like Michael Burnham and Captain Georgiou getting lost in their desert or how an ion storm in space will completely throw a ship around Um, so it was an adventure and that was actually really fun at the end of the day
1: just like a Star Trek just like yeah
0: an away mission gone awry Okay, um, so, but we did watch an episode um, of Enterprise called Two Days and Two Nights, and these characters also had adventures of their own. Mm-hmm. So, Elise, which characters, Shore Leave, do you think most resembled yours? Or which characters, Shore Leave, adventure, would you wish you had?
1: Okay, well, only one person got out happy <laughs> by the end. But we'll we'll... I'll answer this question thinking about what they went in wanting to get out of their shoreleaves. So, quick recap. Trip and Malcolm went out to go clubbing and find pick up some lovely alien ladies was their goal. Hoshi wanted to do some linguistic research, but she ended up doing that at the same time as meeting up with this lovely young man while Trip and Malcolm had some difficulties <laughs> with <laughs> with basically getting just duped. By some tricky aliens pretending to be lovely ladies, Captain Archer's shore leave—he sort of just intended to spend taking long walks on the beach with his dog, but he ended up kind of having a weird flirtation with this woman, and then she knocked him out, and she was a spy, and you know. But you know, long walks on the beach with your dog sounds good. And then uh, finally, Ensign Mayweather wanted to go rock climbing on a rock that changes its shape as you climb it, and he fell off and broke his leg, and they woke up Dr. Flox. Now, if I could choose anybody to be, I would choose to be Dr. Flox, because Dr. Flox was sleeping, and sleep is great. <laughs> but, 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 but if I can't hibernate through my store leave, I think I would probably... I mean, Hoshi's store leave was pretty nice. She went to some, like, hydrothermal pools with a hot guy and, like, yeah, I'll take that. That sounds pretty nice. Otherwise, Archer's trip. Just the idea of taking long walks on the beach with my dog sounds really nice. I miss my dog a lot. The whole episode, I was just like, Porthos! Porthos is so cute! Porthos! Porthos is really cute! So, yeah. How about you, Mike?
0: Well, honestly... It was nothing like Travis's adventure, but probably the one that most resembled mine was Travis's because we were doing a lot of interesting geology, weird, weird rocks. Yeah, weird rocks and going into lava tubes. Oh, was this
1: what our trip was like, or what we wanted it to be? Uh, both. I, yeah. Both. Oh, because my trip was nothing like either of the things I yeah. just described. It would probably no. be the closest to Travis's as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh but yeah rocks didn't move on me although walking on a lava it's you know hard. It's, it's i it's, also it's,
1: walked yeah. on a bunch of law <laughs> la- of a on the galapagos the galapagos are a chain of volcanic islands at a hot spot similar to the way that hawaii works so the geology is pretty similar when it comes to these kinds of lava flows that you walk around on and yeah i did actually sort of trip once and scuffed up a hand so it didn't quite break a leg mm-hmm. but the a did claim a bit of skin just you know as its token price
0: yeah, these rocks, even, you know, when you're just snorkeling in the water, like, I, I came out of snorkeling with sea turtles, which, wait, who who was it that snorkeled, or who, that went... Archer. Archer, yeah. Archer, so maybe, he
1: went and walked around, yeah, yeah, he went out to that boat in the bay and got yeah. some food, there and there was a sea turtle that bit the girl. Right, yeah, yeah.
0: so it was cool to see sea turtles, um, but it wasn't a sea turtle that hurt me, I just walked out and there was this big gash on my finger, I guess maybe I brushed up against some Coral rock. cuts.
1: Um, in Hawaii, I guess it would be coral, because it could be really, really sharp. And how deep was the water that you were in? It, it was
0: not very deep. Okay, I maybe, think it was a rock. Maybe yeah, it was it a wasn't, rock It then. wasn't coral. All
1: the time. Yeah. So I scuba dive. And so when I've been to Hawaii and I've got cut, it was because of a coral that I wasn't watching. But
0: um, Whose shore leave would I most have wanted to have? Uh, i feel like there's really only one answer it's just hoshi yeah
1: like she had a nice meal talked to some like a nice elderly couple like got some compliments on her field of work met up with a cute person like went out did some adventuring you know and then she got to be smug about it Mm -hmm. being smug at the end is the most important part to be sure
0: or not nearly getting your life you know (laughs) Fainting. Fainting. Uh, Did everybody else faint at some point in time?
1: Yes, everybody else faint. Did Travis faint? We don't know. Maybe Probably. He probably passed out. Most likely. Breaking his leg. We can imagine so. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, yes. Definitely Hoshi. Definitely Hoshi. There's
1: really only one answer.
0: (laughs) Alright, so the reason why you were in the Galapagos, Elise, is because you were taking this amazing class at Caltech, which is I must add, only for undergraduates, so I'm very, yeah, very the TAs angry. the don't even get
1: to go on the trip. Mm-mm. I'm very
0: jealous that I did not get to go on this and am not ever allowed to go on it. So, But anyhow, the class is all about evolution, and mm-hmm. the Galapagos has some scientific and historical relevance to the theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. So, Elise, why don't you just briefly describe what the idea for this class is and then we can talk about the science of evolution. Yeah, so
1: just really briefly, the class is just a class on evolution and looking at evolution as sort of like the grand unifying principle of biology. And so making the rest of biology make sense in the context of evolution, which it really does because evolution is the mechanism by which biology exists. And it's taught as sort of a, either a series of case studies, and one of the ones we spent a lot of time on was whales. so I have some some fun whale tidbits if we ever do a whale episode. Oh well, we will when we watch <laughs> and, Star Trek for the Boy child Of course that's my favorite Star Trek movie of all time, including the reboots it's just it's unbeatable but in any, in any case and then we talked a lot about more modern techniques uh, for studying evolution and applying it to medical science and using microbes to understand evolution because one of the people who teaches the class, uh, Victoria Orphan, who's my research advisor, is really into microbial ecology and the role that microbes have played and continue to play in the earth system and using microbes as a system to understand things that are relevant throughout all of biology. So there's a lot of that as well, but of course, being a Caltech GPS division class, There was a field trip and this field trip was to the Galapagos during spring break after we had taken the class through the winter. And so it wasn't any kind of like scientific trip. We weren't doing research or anything. It was just sort of seeing firsthand the things that we had talked about. If you're unfamiliar with the history behind the theory of evolution, it's that basically Charles Darwin was on a voyage that went all around South America. He ended up in the Galapagos and that's sort of where he started to formulate his idea for evolution because there are some things on islands, and he happened to be on the Galapagos, um, on these isolated islands that make it easier to sort of observe evolution as it happens and as it happened. Those islands were sort of the impetus for Darwin coming up with the theory. So we went to see the things that he had seen and just sort of experience it for ourselves and have a have a really good time. Yeah, that's basically the class.
0: All right, so how exactly does evolution work? And I don't know who's listening to this podcast, but my childhood was sprinkled with this (laughs) anime show called Pokemon. And in Pokemon... Your childhood was only sprinkled with Pokemon? uh, My
1: childhood was just like, (laughs) take a whole bottle of sprinkles and just pour it all over that cupcake. It was just a mess of Pokemon. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'd say... Yeah, my my cupcake was was Star Trek, and then the sprinkles were Pokemon. Anyhow, um, what I'm trying to ask is... In Pokemon, things evolve like Pikachu evolves into Raichu and it just like happens right there. <laughs> Is that how evolution works? No,
1: no. Um, that would be super cool, but that's not really how it works. If Pokemon were to evolve the way that evolution actually works, you'd have to breed your Pikachu like a zillion times and then maybe eventually at the end after selecting for being very careful about which offspring you're selecting to breed with each other, you might be able to have something a bit like a Raichu, you know, millions of years after you died. So um, the real process of evolution works over generations rather than on individuals. And the basic idea behind it is that, so there's naturally occurring variation within species. It's just mutations occur and there's no one individual of the species is the same as other individuals, or it's very rare for that to be like identical twins are identical genetically, but they're, most humans are quite different from each other and you can just see this looking around a room. Everyone's rather distinct. So this is the naturally occurring variation within our species. We're all the same species and we can all reproduce with each other. And so if you have a genetic quirk that makes it easier for you to reproduce more so to survive long enough to reproduce and to be desirable to the opposite sex for animals with sex, it's a bit different in microbes that sort of asexually reproduce, but among animals, which is what Darwin was observing, to be selected for sexually and to just survive long enough to reproduce, if you have some quirks that let you do like that by like being faster or being more attractive, or being stronger or smarter or something, then there's a better chance that you will survive, you will reproduce, and that you'll pass on your genes. And in those genes is the code for that little quirk that you had. So you look like your parents because you have their genes. You don't have just Joe Schmo's genes from across the world. Um, And so over time, when nature keeps rewarding certain traits, certain genes, with more offspring, you end up with the species slowly changing, until eventually, it's kind of fuzzy where you draw this distinction, it's a different species than what you started with. And so the classic example are the many different species of finches on the Galapagos Islands, having a common ancestor that got marooned on the islands. These finches can't fly across the ocean, they're small little birds. Think like Tweety Bird, not an eagle. They're very small and very frail. Um, and so they get this, this bird gets marooned on the island, and it can fly to the other islands. They they populate the other islands, and then they're all isolated from each other, and they're in this weird environment where there aren't predators, and there are a whole bunch of empty ecological niches. There are a whole bunch of different things that they can take advantage of, like certain plants that have certain sized seeds, and different things that they encounter on the different islands. So different traits in these finches that are living in different places and taking advantage of different resources get rewarded. So if you're a finch that lives on an island where there's a plant that has really tough, thick nuts on certain plants, then you'll be rewarded if you have a big beak that can break those nuts. But if you live on a different island where it's sort of little seeds, you will be rewarded for having a smaller beak that doesn't take as much energy to grow, maintain, and that can more finely manipulate these small things so on these different islands and in these different places, you get different species evolving from the same start.
0: So this evolution of different species, this speciation due to the fact that different finches arrive on different islands uh, and are very separated from the other populations of finches on other islands, reminds me of an analog speciation in Star Trek where some Vulcans traveled and settled on another planet Mm -hmm. which they called Romulus Romulus. and the Romulans evolved out of that and they became a completely separate species. That's pretty wild
1: in that that happened really fast. Evolution usually people are thinking it takes a shorter time than like sometimes eons but like that there will be certain sort of bursts in evolution like the cambrian explosion there was a lot of new diversity that shows up but really this this process doesn't take place on the scale of a, of a lifetime of a human or a vulcan it takes place on the scale of the lifetimes of many humans and many vulcans so like the longer your your generation time is the longer it takes for you to evolve this is why for something like e coli which divides once every couple of hours under the right conditions You can witness evolution, and there are labs that have been doing this. They started with one line of E. coli that they have sequenced, and E. coli are all clones of each other. So the only way that they can evolve is through mutation. There's no recombination, which is something that happens in animals with sex. So you get half of your dad's genes and half of your mom's genes, but which genes those are sort of gets mixed up and shuffled. So you're not a clone of your siblings. You all got sort of different mixes of mom and dad. But in E. coli, they're all clones. The only way that they can be different from each other is by random mutation. Just a mistake in the copying of the DNA. And so they've let this happen for a really long time, decades in certain experiments. And now they have species of, basically, they call them lines, but they're as different from each other as some species that we call species. They're just completely genetically distinct. They can do different things. They can metabolize different things. They Like, what they eat in such is different, and they have different division times, they're just completely different organisms. And this is what antibiotic resistance is, actually, a consequence of. These microbes that divide so quickly, we're providing a pressure to reward microbes that are not as killed by the antibiotics, so the ones that survive are the ones that go on to reproduce, and so eventually, if you keep using all these antibiotics, you have an impetus for evolution to say, hey, E. coli, or whatever. Become antibiotic resistance reward this change and now the whole population has this change.
0: And the Star Trek canon, it was a divergence that happened several thousand years ago, which is a long time. It's probably several, maybe tens of generations, given Vulcan and Romulans' long lifespans. Yeah, but it's that is still very quick when we're talking about. They might not really be
1: separate species either. Like they, it seems there are some physical differences but nothing I mean you could just a a Chihuahua and a Great Dane are the same species Um, but I mean it's taken us centuries and thousands of years to, to make dogs the way they are but it's the same species, huge variation so it could have just been like some small population of Vulcans that went to Romulus that were a little different from the rest of the Vulcan population already and so they're not really separate species really so much as different cultural groups that happen to have a few genetic quirks different from each other just because of the genetic bottleneck, sort of, of putting all these Romulans on Romulus. This is actually something you can see in human DNA. If you get your genes tested, the people who do it might be able to tell you about certain migrations that occurred in your history that you're descended from people who migrated. For instance, certain groups of settlers to New England from England are recognizable genetically if you're descended from this group because it was such a small group of people that came over originally. There was so little diversity. And so they all sort of shared this certain traits that can show up in their their offspring. I I would be hesitant to call Vulcans and Romulans a different species because they can mate and produce fertile offspring.
0: Well, we can mate with Vulcans. With
1: a lot of help. <laughs> with a lot of help. But I'm kind of under the impression that Vulcans and Romulans can just normally reproduce with each other.
0: I am not sure. Yeah,
1: it's, it's the whole cross-species mating thing in Star Trek sort of throws a wrench in the traditional definition of species.
0: Sure, yeah, yeah. But we can blame the progenitor race. Yeah. (laughs) That's another podcast episode. So I I really liked what you said when you brought up the fact that E. coli, due to their very rapid turnover or replication time, means that we can watch evolutionary processes in the world. Yeah, it's real.
1: When I say the theory of evolution... I'm talking about a scientific theory in that it was a hypothesis that has now a ton of evidence backing it up. So nobody in science will ever call something a fact if it's a hypothesis that now has a bunch of evidence backing it up. Gravity is a theory. Relativity is a theory. These are all things that are considered facts. Like if you're just in the normal vernacular, you would say it's a fact, it's truth. But in science, we call these things theories, and theory is a very hardy label. A hypothesis is a guess, it's an idea. A theory is something that has been proven by evidence. So there is evidence for evolution and we can actually watch it happen in a dish. It's not some abstract thing that you can't see. We see it in the rock record. A lot of people don't trust the rock record, which hurts my soul because I'm a geologist, but um, (laughs) when I say a lot of people, I'm not talking about scientists. I'm talking about lay people who are suspicious of evolution.
0: Yeah. So one way that scientists like to visualize the relationship between all of life on Earth and understand pictorially the way that evolution has caused speciation, has caused branches in and divergences of different species, is through trees of life, Mm -hmm. and what are sometimes called taxonomic or phylogenetic trees. And so, Elise, how do scientists come up with these things?
1: So in the good old days, you had to go out and observe a lot of things about an animal, like the way its bone structure worked, or how many different toes it had, and what it was capable of doing. And these are things called phenotype. It's what things look like. And you had to sort of piece together using phenotype, like this group of animals all has slitted pupils and this one doesn't, but this group that doesn't have it also shares all of these other traits with the slitted pupil group. And so you have to reconstruct sort of the sequence of evolutionary events that went into producing what you see today. And this is by its nature sort of sketchy because there's a ton of convergent evolution we see. Convergent evolution is totally different lines of life, Developing a similar structure like a bat wing developed completely separate from a bird's wing developed completely separate from a pterodactyl wing developed completely separately from a bug wing So if you were just looking at things that can fly you would group bats, birds, pterodactyls and bugs all together in a in a group and that's obviously incorrect But nowadays luckily we live in the golden age of genetic sequencing and so what we can do is read the letters in your DNA or anything's DNA And these letters are just these four different compounds called nucleotides that make up the ladder structure that you see in this double helix. So if you're to roll out the ladder, rip off the two sides of the ladder, and just read the rungs in order, like a book, that's what sequencing is. And now we can use algorithms on computers to compare how similar and different the sequences of organisms are, and use this quantitative data to construct... These trees which sort of measure the evolutionary quote-unquote distance between species. So now we have a much more reliable, much more real quantitative way of measuring how different species are from each other so we can more easily reconstruct the tree of life. And because we can use sequencing, we can also sequence creatures that we've never even been able to see or grow in the lab. So you can go out, sequence the DNA that you find in some dirt, and then you'll know about the creatures that live in that dirt, even if you can't grow them in your lab, which is great because it's really hard to grow a lot of microbes in the lab. They're just really picky and finicky and they die. So our understanding of the tree of life has just exploded recently because of all of this sequencing data.
0: Connecting this back to our origin of life discussion from a few episodes back, some of the most conserved genes, or in other words, some of the oldest genes in these phylogenetic studies, point to the characteristics of what we call the last universal common ancestor, or LUCA, from which everything else on Earth that we see today that's alive diverged. And from these genes, we can understand the metabolism of LUCA and the environment that it likes to live in, and Evidence is pointing towards a last universal common ancestor that really liked to live at hot temperatures and used H2, or hydrogen gas, and CO2, carbon dioxide, for its metabolism. So this is an indicator that perhaps LUCA lived at a hydrothermal vent type system. So thanks to our phylogenetic trees and our ability to sequence genes, we now know that we share something like, what, 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Yeah, We shared a very recent common ancestor, which means that chimps and us are the descendants of this common ancestor. It's not that we evolved from chimpanzees. It's that we both evolved from something else back in time. And we can trace this lineage Back and back and back to more primitive forms of mammals and back to fish, which walked out of the sea in an amphibious phase and then eventually populated the land. So um, there was a really interesting Star Trek episode, which we watched. um, (laughs) Called Genesis. Called Genesis, which touched upon this theme that all hominids, whether you are a human, a Klingon, a Betazoid, you came from something much more primitive. And in this episode, the crew of the USS Enterprise de-evolve. And so let me see if I can just tell the story of what happened, and then we can start talking about it. So at the beginning, Reg Barkley, who is... (laughs) He's a hypochondriac. (laughs) He's an adorable hypochondriac. (laughs) Um,
1: And cat aficionado. Yes.
0: Uh, He is worried that he's sick. And... Indeed he is, but it's not life-threatening. And in order to get his body to fight the disease on its own, Dr. Crusher decides to activate a part of his genetic sequence which was not being expressed. Now, this is a, a very interesting concept that your genome is sort of like a library and you are not constantly expressing all of the books in your library. It's like there's somebody who's actually picking out specific books to read them, and those specific books are what gets translated into proteins and eventually into all of the aspects of who you are. But there's a lot of books that are unread in your genome, so this is actually a really interesting idea that if you activate an unactivated gene, you could express something else. And anyway, so Reg Barkley needed to have a gene activated to be able to fight this disease, and in doing so, Dr. Crusher inadvertently created a virus that activated everybody else's unread genes. In uh, And the word that she uses is intron, and we can talk about what an intron is in just a bit, but apparently all of these introns contain stored genetic information from past iterations of biology. And so when those things were expressed, in a beta zoid like Deanna Troy, she became a amphibious creature. When those things were expressed in a Klingon like Worf, he became a primitive Klingon, which is apparently even scarier than a real Klingon, than a normal crab. Klingon. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and um, Will Riker became a a auth, uh, australopithecine, australopithecine um, exactly. And Reg Barkley somehow (laughs) he came in a rapid. (laughs) Um, So let's, let's talk about this and let's begin with Elise. Tell me what an intron is.
1: In the library of your genome, a small fraction of the books that are in there are ever read and everything else is just sitting there collecting dust. It never makes a protein and it doesn't code for genes. It's what's in between the genes. So this is what an intron is. It's not like what star trek said it is in that it's it's the old dna from when you were less evolved it's not that it's nobody really knows exactly what it does but modern ideas are sort of thinking that this is what regulates when the other genes are expressed in your dna it's sort of like the marching orders for when to go and read the other books it's a list of books to go read sort of but it's certainly not just old DNA. Some of it might be like just an old deactivated gene, but most of it is definitely not that and we know this because it's not like we go and sequence your DNA and we see genes for gills and genes for feathers and genes for all these things that you could have if only they were turned on, but that's not what we see when we sequence introns because we know what those genes look like in other animals and that's not what we see when we sequence introns.
0: But let's say, for the sake of argument, that we did contain genes from past iterations from, sure. from history. Sure, let's accept their premise. Yeah, but exactly. I, let's, let's say
1: de-evolution, sure, it, can ha- it can't It can happen. Let's say it can happen. Let's say it can happen. Yeah. And
0: let's talk about the types of animals that the crew de-evolved into. Mm-hmm. So I thought that um, Deanna Troy de-evolving into an amphibious creature was quite interesting because it's quite likely that a lot of the emergences of life on other worlds happened in an aqueous environment like the bottom of the sea or something like that, and that you would get microbes in the sea and then you would develop more complex organisms that would eventually become multicellular and then you would develop things that swim, be it fish or whatever you have, shrimp, crustacean, crustace- yeah, yeah. Um,
1: the other big animal group.
0: And then those things eventually crawl out onto whatever land masses there are on that planet. And there would be this intermediate phase where something requires part of its life cycle to be in the water and can exploit the riches of the land for the other part of its life cycle. So I thought it was really cool that Deanna Troy de into an amphibian. That's
1: deep de-evolution. I found it a lot more compelling when you sort of reverted to early hominids because there's so little different between us and early hominids that it seems feasible that you could just turn off a couple of genes and turn on a few and and you could express differently. But to reconstruct structures that completely don't exist anymore in, in humans, it's difficult. Maybe for betazoids, the divergence was later. But yeah, like Mike said, it for if you're going from sort of a evolution on other planets in Star Trek happened in a way that's similar to the Earth. All tetrapods, so that's four-limbed things, so this is mammals, this is birds, lizards, dinosaurs, and I love dinosaurs, by the way. So this is all of these sort of charismatic, non-bug, non-crab, non-creepy-crawly stuff, all has a common ancestor that was a fish that became an amphibian. So it is compelling to see Diana do that. Is that her human DNA history? Is this her Betazoid DNA history? It's kind of hard to know, but she definitely de-evolved the worst <laughs> out of everybody. Well, well I except don't know. for maybe Berkeley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: so Red Berkeley, uh, he de-evolved into <laughs> a arachnid, and I think he did a little bit more than de-evolve. He, he de- re-evolved. Yeah. So let's talk about this, Elise. You can't de evolve into an arachnid. Because
1: we never, we don't have a grandpa arachnid. No matter how far back into the family tree of humans you go, the closest you'll ever get is a cousin. So somebody who's not in your line of descent, who isn't your grandma, grandma, grandpa, great, 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 tend to the whatever great, grand organism. So it's a completely different branch off of the the family. Arachnids belong to the same larger group that includes insects, that includes crustaceans like crabs and shrimp. And so this group came onto land completely separate of fish. So so in order to evolve, to de-evolve into an arachnid, what you'd have to do is go back to the common ancestor between humans and arachnids, and then go up a different branch of the family tree. So re-evolve differently, not towards humans, but towards the bug side. So it's kind of silly in that if it was just reactivating old genes, it would have had to be making new genes that we just wouldn't have had in the first place because that's not the branch of the family tree that we're on.
0: Or Reg Barkley is Spider-Man. Is, is Spider-Man.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why he's such a hypochondriac. He got bit by a radioactive spider and he's just never been the same. He's always sick.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so he had that
1: DNA the whole time.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the talking points that we wanted to have for this episode scientifically. So just to wrap up, I thought that Genesis was a lot scarier than I remembered it being.
1: Okay, there's this one part where Picard's like walking around in engineering and Barkley is Spider-Man with all these crazy eyes. Just jumps Smashes into the, the glass wall. I jumped. Yeah. I was not expecting that. It's pretty dark.
0: Also, wharf like, yeah. venom spitting, spitting Dr. Crusher. Yeah. Oh. oh. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it was a screaming in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. And I love how they just had a casual dead crewman that they just didn't deal with. They were mm-hmm. just like, oh, he died. Yeah. His spine was broken in three places. It looks like he got attacked by an animal. Chill.
0: Yeah. Whatever. One little thing that I noticed this time around watching this episode. That I hadn't noticed before was a little subtle directing move where they were having a little meeting in the conference room and when they got up nurse Ogawa sort of puts her knuckles on the table mm-hmm. to push herself up and then starts walking a little bit with her knuckles before going out the room yeah and I was like "Whoa, okay yeah that's like a little visual cue that we we're starting to devolve into our great ape ancestral line,
1: mm-hmm. which was cool. So we're still great apes, mm-hmm. don't you? Don't you think you're special? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, we are special yeah, we for have, other reasons. We have language, which yeah. is
1: something that was actually brought up when they were encountering Riker, because his cranial plates have thickened and his brain has shrunk. And don't get me started on having his brain regrow and contain all of the information that was lost when it went back. In any case. But his brain had shrunk and he could no longer comprehend language. And this is something we actually just really don't understand is when language became a possibility. And it looks like humans were around for a long time before language started. So it's kind of unknown exactly where that fits into our story and how important it is for
0: us. Definitely an active area of research that bridges the gap between biology and the humanities, like linguistics. Mm -hmm. And that's a really fascinating intersection for me. So, unless there's anything else... Nope, that's it for me. Okay, we'll see you next time. That concludes episode 38 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of evolution, one of the foundations of modern biology. Gene sequencing is a powerful tool. And one of the greatest lessons that it teaches us is that every living thing we have ever encountered on Earth is related to each other. You, me, your local squirrels, the plants you ate for lunch, the bacteria in your gut that are digesting those plants, we're all twigs on the same tree of life, all part of the same story. And seeking out completely new trees of life on strange new worlds is not only the mission of the USS Enterprise, it's the mission of astrobiologists like me. So let's keep boldly going, and I'll see you out there.